Pastor Boone, in his absence, asked me to continue in the study of 2 Timothy. And I count it a great privilege to be able to have studied and to bring a message to you, actually four messages, in this great book, great letter. So I'm going to ask you to turn your Bible to that letter, 2 Timothy. And if you happen to be using the Bible in front of you, that's on page 1414. So turn there. And uh, we're going to look at verses 15 to 18 of chapter 1. By this time, uh, I think it'd be helpful to get a little bit of background information on the book because it helps to set kind of the, the tone for the message today. In other words, the context of this letter. So most of you know, 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter. So he's in jail uh, in a dungeon in Rome. However, this is not the first time he's been in prison. He was in prison in Jerusalem briefly and rested. And then he was taken to Caesarea along the Mediterranean coast. And there was a prisoner for two years or more and gave testimony to all the uh, muckety-mucks of the Roman Empire and uh, shared plainly and boldly not who only who he was, but more importantly, who Jesus Christ is. He felt that he wasn't getting a fair trial, which he wasn't, and so he appealed to Caesar. And that meant that he would have to travel to Rome. And so he was a prisoner of the Roman government and was taken to Rome. And at the end of the book of Acts, Acts 27, 28, you find the account of his first Roman imprisonment. But that is not what we have here in the text. But I want you to understand that though Paul is in jail and in uh, jail in Rome, this is not the first time he's been in jail in Rome. <clears throat> During his first Roman imprisonment, uh, not that it was an easy time, but he was under what was called house arrest. So uh, he, w- he received many guests and he had the freedom to preach and teach to anyone who came to his home. And it was during that first Roman imprisonment that he wrote what we have as the prison epistles. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Paul was subsequently released from his first Roman imprisonment and went on something called his fourth missionary journey, perhaps as far as Spain. And he wrote 1 Timothy and Titus during that time period. And some people, uh, there's a lot of discussion about this. Some people think he also wrote the book of Hebrews. We won't get into that. That's not part of our discussion. But around A.D. 66 or 67, the Roman authorities arrested Paul and put him in prison again in Rome again. And it was during this second Roman imprisonment that he wrote the letter that we have in front of us. However, this time the circumstances are much more severe. He appears to be in a dungeon or cell. And though he can receive guests, it doesn't look like he's under house arrest. He has few visitors, and some of them have already walked out on him. He's afraid of the coming winter. And he tells Timothy, if you read the latter part of 2 Timothy, he asks Timothy, please come quickly, come before winter, and please bring the cloak, my, my heavy coat, namely that it's going to be cold and damp where I'm staying. And I would agree, and if you would study it, you would too, that the details and the chronology may be a little bit difficult to piece together, 
But it appears that by the time Paul wrote 2 Timothy, he had already been to court in what we might call his preliminary hearing. And in chapter 4, verse 16, he talks about what I think is his preliminary hearing. If you want to read that with me, of course, it would help if I found the text. 2 Timothy 4, 16. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. And so uh, apparently he had a preliminary hearing. At, at that point, no one would stand up for him. And he, he appeared alone. And then he said in verse 17, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the proclamation could be fully given. And I proclaimed the gospel to the to the Gentiles. God rescued me out of the lion's mouth. And so he drew strength from the Lord, even though he was alone and he was able to withstand that first preliminary hearing. And though nothing physically happened to him at that point. It doesn't appear that he was flogged or in some way physically beaten. He got word some way or another that now his time was coming to a close. It wasn't going to turn out the way his first imprisonment ended. He was not going to get out. At some point in time, Nero would pass sentence and Paul would be beheaded. So what we have in front of us is this letter now written to us with all this context and all these events behind him. He knows it's the end. Unless you get the impression, or I get the impression, that he wasn't crushed by that news, as well as, and maybe more so, by the desertion of many brothers who had disassociated themselves with Paul and his mission, We have these verses, our text today, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 to 18, to help us get a dose of reality about what it's really like to be in prison for the sake of Christ. And even though you are someone as incredibly spiritually strong as the Apostle Paul, you are still human. And so I'd like to read the text to you, verses 15 to 18 of chapter 1. Here's what Paul writes. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Now you've heard the trite saying before, and maybe you can even complete it. If you can't stand the heat, how do do people finish it? No way. Yes, that's how they finish it. But after reading this text and really understanding... Paul's feelings here. I would never finish it that way. I would finish it this way. When I read this text, I would say, if you can't stand the heat, ask God to send someone to refresh you so that you can stand the heat. If you can't stand the heat, don't try to stand it by yourself. 
If you can't stand the heat of the difficulties of your life, don't go it alone. If you can't stand heat, don't leave the kitchen, but ask God to send somebody into that kitchen who will be a refresher for you so that you can stand it. God wants you to persevere. So this morning, before we remember Jesus and the trials of his life and his sacrifice on the cross for us, I'd like you to see the need for refreshment And then I'd like you to see the qualities of the person who is a refresher, a person who refreshes. And then maybe some practical ways that we can refresh one another blended into all of that. So first of all, and I think by now you're beginning to get a sense of the need for refreshment. And again, look at verse 16. It says, uh, the Lord grant to meet mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. And in verse 15, in front of that, you are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me. All who are in Asia. Now, as I studied this, I started to think, well, what in the world does all mean? After all, when you think of all the churches in the location of Asia, Asia, by the way, is what we call modern-day Turkey, and, and the western side of that, what's called Asia Minor. So you have at least seven churches there in Asia Minor in the first century, because, and we know that because Revelation chapter 2 and 3, uh, Jesus specifically addresses those seven churches and has a message for them. So we know there's seven, and we know there's others in the area. Colossi's not mentioned, but it's, one, uh, it's in the Asia Minor area, and Hierapolis as well. So when you read these words, all who are in Asia, all who are in Asia have turned away from me. You ask yourself, does that mean every last one Christian in that huge area decided to defect from loyalty to the Apostle Paul? We have to ask that question. We need to kind of get some understanding of what Paul means. Here's what I think it means. One of two things. Okay. One is Paul means everyone that I asked to come and and be a character witness or be supportive of me in the court of Nero. Everyone that I sort of summoned in a sense, I asked, would you please stand with me? Everyone that I asked said no. They all just they all just flew. Or he means that the defection of, of loyalty to Paul was so staggering That the only way he could describe it was, everybody left me. I think what you have here, if I'm going to come down on one side or the other, I think it's the second, and that is, although it could be the first, but it's that Paul is depressed. He's lonely. He's gotten wind that just everybody's kind of just deserted him. They don't want to support him anymore. The danger is too real to, to line up with Paul. Paul's a, uh, a Roman prisoner and he's not well liked and he's, he's been hated by uh, all the religious leaders. And uh, to, to side with Paul, to be a friend of Paul, is now to incur some of the hatred that the other people have for Paul. So I think it's safe to say he was depressed and he felt a terrible gloom come over his life. And then... He, sa- he mentions two people. Now, this is interesting. You know, would you have liked to have your name mentioned in the Bible? 
You would if, you know, you're like Daniel or Joseph or all those people who have nothing bad is said about you. But here is their moment in history, in eternal history, where your names are recorded for all of the believers of all time. And they are recorded because, I think what Paul means in recording these two names, they of all people, these two guys that I thought were my, my most trusted companions, people that perhaps were leaders in churches and some of the churches in, in Asia Minor, men that perhaps stood with Paul before, of all people, these two guys, however you pronounce them, Phygelus and Hermogenes, of all, the, of all those two. They, along with everybody else, deserted me. And then, if you want to get even a a deeper picture of Paul's need of refreshment, you can go to chapter 4 and verse 10, and you look at some other people in specific. Again, uh, again, here's a, a mention of a person's name, and it's not that complimentary. 2 Timothy 4, 9 and 10, for every, make every effort to come to me soon for Demas, Having loved this present world has deserted me and he's gone someplace else. Now, Demas is mentioned other places. I'm sure Pastor Boone will get to that. Other places that are mentioned, he's complimented. Okay, something happened. He went on a southern slide, so to speak, and his life went downhill to the point now that he was in love with the world. He loved the world. So there's another person who's a servant with Paul, who's now turning away and deserting him. The heat is too great and they leave. And so Paul felt the need to send certain men uh, away too. He mentions there in chapter four, other people that were with him that, that hadn't deserted him necessarily, but he needed to send them away. Crescens went to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Perhaps those places had problems in churches and he wanted to send leaders to, for whatever reason, he had to send others away. And he says, only Luke is with me. Paul felt very alone. Have you ever felt like troubles and difficulties just pile on in your life it's just one thing after the other and there's just no let up and it's on and on and on and after a while you know it can get to you because you're human you feel this stuff and though people are well-meaning and they say oh well you know the lord will help you don't worry what's the problem you know what they mean is god will give you strength and that's a true statement and it needs to be said we need to first listen to pain we need to first hear a person and try to understand the depth of their of the heat, the, the, the temperature of the heat, the depth of their trial that they're going through. Loneliness is what Paul is experiencing. Loneliness is a common experience for us all. Foster children have no sense of belonging anywhere. At least they often don't. Children from single parent homes often struggle with the loss of a parent through death or divorce. Only children long for a brother or sister. Children from large families can get lost in the crowd. Single adults experience loneliness. And many assume that the cure for that is marriage. And guess what? Married people get lonely too. Their marriage may fall apart or fall short of their dreams. And they find themselves feeling worse than they did when they were single. Even spouses in good marriages can feel alone. Sometimes both are, work, both are working, going to night classes, busy at church. 
And some mothers struggle with it when husband is away on a business trip and she's left with the children and finds herself alone while he finds himself alone in a hotel room. And certainly the elderly spend hours alone in nursing homes or in their own home. Soldiers overseas miss their families. Kids go off to college. When you go to the hospital, that's an awful feeling of aloneness. And prisoners feel alone. The list includes the person to your left and to your right. And it includes you. No one here is exempt from the feelings of loneliness. We all experience times when we feel isolated, vulnerable, and alone. All loneliness have, has its roots in the fall of Adam and Eve, the sin of Adam and Eve. Sin separated them from God and from each other, and everything changed when they sinned. Openness turned to hiding. Completeness turned to loss. Acceptance gave way to rejection, and praise became blame. I'd like to say to anyone here this morning who is experiencing Loneliness in the sense of their relationship with God, that there is a reason for that. God puts that there because you cannot feel like you belong to him until there's a time in your life when you acknowledge your sin, acknowledge that your sin has separated you from God, acknowledge that God's at enmity with you and you're at enmity with God until you are reconciled to God. There will be no sense of belonging. But when you come to Christ, when you repent, when you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you call upon him, you trust in him to forgive your sins and to come into your life, the Bible says that you are reconciled to God. And God has answers to loneliness. And the answer is found in union with Jesus Christ. And because we are in, believers are united to Jesus, then we are, by virtue of that union with him, we are united to one another. And therefore, we, one another, can be the cure for each other's loneliness. We are so connected that when one part suffers, the other part suffers. We don't have to hide behind fig leaves as Adam and Eve did when our sin is exposed. We can confess our sins and we can, we can ask for forgiveness and be forgiven. We can walk in the light. Sin causes separation, but praise be to God through Christ's death and resurrection and faith in that we can be restored to God and to one another. Now, there's so much more to the issue of loneliness. I understand that. And I reprinted, got permission from Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation to reprint an article by Jane Clark called Loneliness, God's Remedy. And those uh, copies of that article are on the literature table, and you can feel free to take one or more, however many you can use, pass them around, and use it as God wants you to use it. But the need for refreshment is everywhere. It's in your life. It is in my life. And so God has an answer to that. And that is through a person who refreshes. And that's the second thing I'd like you to see, the person who refreshes. God always has his people to use to get into the kitchen with you, so to speak, and refresh you so that you can stand the heat and you can persevere and follow God's plan for your life. Now, we have this man named Onesiphorus, or however you want to pronounce it, who is only mentioned here. And for all eternity, his name 
is emblazoned as the person who gave Paul a breath of fresh air in prison. He breathed life into his lonely and parched soul. Well, the question is, what made this man a refresher? I have a couple qualities that I'd like to share with you that come out of this text. In verse 16, we read, The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Here's quality number one when it comes to being a person who refreshes. And that is that you are striving to please God, not men. That's the first quality. Onesiphorus was striving to please God, not men. That's why he was not ashamed of Paul's chains. The reason that everybody else was deserting him was because they were ashamed of Paul's chains. They were ashamed to be associated with this prisoner of Rome. They were afraid that by association they too might suffer like Paul is suffering. And so they departed. But Onesiphorus was committed to Christ, to the gospel, to the cross, and he didn't care if that brought him close to Paul and closer to suffering. His goal in life was to please God. And he knew that pleasing God would mean that he might not be pleasing to men. But that was okay to him because his goal was to be pleasing to God and therefore he could be a refreshment to the apostle Paul. A true refresher is someone who has taken deep drinks of the well of God's grace found in Christ, now knows that there's nothing else that satisfies but Jesus, and doesn't care if the world rejects them, because he knows whom he has believed in, and he knows that God is going to care for him until the day that Christ comes back for him. That's the first chapter. We just, Cliff went over it in verse 12. I know whom I believed. I'm not ashamed. You see, he knows Christ. He's taken a deep drink of the grace of Christ. And he knows that he can, he could never abandon a godly friend who uh, is following Jesus. And so, the first quality of a refresher is someone whose goal in life is to please the Lord, not men. Therefore, he's not ashamed to identify himself with Christ and with a follower of Christ. The second quality of a, of a person who refreshes is that he or she knows how to meet a need. It says there in verse 16 that he often refreshed me. Now the word refresh means to cool again, to cool off, to recover from the effects of heat, to refresh one's spirit, to recover breath, to take the air, to cool off, to revive. In other words, like a cool drink on a hot day, like going into a cool room after being out in hot, humid, sticky air, like standing in front of a fan to cool off, Onesiphorus was that to the Apostle Paul. Jeremiah 31 verse 25 says, God says, I satisfy the weary ones and I refresh everyone who languishes. This is God's ministry. 
And yes, God does it directly. And we're going to talk about that next week more in depth where Paul says, you, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Okay. So there is room for that where we just directly get strength from God. But God often uses other people. In fact, God always uses other people to be that person who refreshes another believer who's in a time of difficulty, who's, who's experiencing the heat of, of trial. And he does it through his people. And so I want to ask you, do you know anyone who's weary this morning, who's lacking in hope or help? Someone that you can fill up. Because in that verse in Jeremiah 31, where God says, I satisfy and I refresh. There the word refresh means to fill. Do you know anybody that's just empty? That's just dried out. Their soul is parched. Their tank is empty, so to speak. God perhaps wants to use you to fill them up, to refresh them, to fill them up with God's grace. In Lisa Beamer's book, Let's Roll, been reading that because of our preparation for the 9-11 service on 9-11 Sunday morning. In reading that, I was reminded of something that happened to her the day of getting the news of her husband's death. Now, if, you, if you've read, how many have read that book, Let's Roll? Just kind of, just get a feel for it. So a few of you have. And uh, of course, you know, Lisa is the widow of Todd Beamer. And uh, Todd was on Flight 93, the one that went out west, was going to go to the, headed for the Capitol or, uh, or wherever, the White House. And he and others were, uh, worked to uh, wrest control or try to wrest control from the terrorists and caused the plane never got to its target. It, it landed uh, in, in a field out in Shanksville, western Pennsylvania. And so Lisa, of course, got the news later that day, 9-11, that her husband was on that flight. And she writes a book about her life and her marriage and what happened to her and how God ministered to her. In that time, and she writes this about <clears throat> the day one on 9/11. A couple hours after she had heard about her her husband passing, she writes, "At one point in the middle of the day, during a lull in the activity, activity in my room, I was staring blankly into space. I looked across Todd's in my bed, and there was Jan." one of our more quiet-natured friends, just sitting on the opposite corner of the bed, quietly praying for me, not talking aloud. Not talking at all. I didn't want to talk. I wasn't able to talk. But her presence in the room was comforting. Thank you, God, for sending Jan. Our presence is often what people need, for our presence is giving of ourselves to another, and it requires some kind of sacrifice. Expressing love will always require some form of giving of yourself. We can refresh others in many different ways. Uh, during our week at Light in the Park, my wife was involved heavily, I was involved heavily, my daughter Elizabeth was involved heavily. And, uh, of course, my mother-in-law lives with us, 96-year-old. And so, uh, but she's gone. We're, we're gone from her all day. And so my wife's thinking, how am I going to get dinner for my mom, so to speak, and uh, get all this done so I'm ready for the next day? And we come home and we get a phone call from a family in the church. And they say, uh, you don't have to cook. We'll be over in a half hour and we have a meal for you. And uh, I, I call those meals 
MREs. Now, anybody in a service knows what an MRE is, right? Meal ready to eat. Now, meal ready to eat in the military, you know, is um, heat over a fire, perhaps add water and just kind of hold your nose and get it down. But this MRE was incredible. And you know what? When you get something like that, that just, it doesn't just get into your body. It gets into your soul. <laughs> That's how it works. It just comforts you because somebody reached out and, and God used that to satisfy three weary people and a 96 year old, uh, mother-in-law. But there are just tons of opportunities to be a refresher. And I want to, I'd like to list a couple others. And here's one that maybe you do know about. Or you haven't heard of, and you're about to hear of it, and it's an exciting ministry. And it's been kind of flying under the radar for the last year and a half or two, and it's called Mobile Ministry. Now, if you're involved with Mobile Ministry, then you know what I'm talking about. But if you don't know, here it is. Uh, Irma Longworth got an idea that... We could minute, we could reach out to the shut-ins in our church. Now, I had already organized a shut-in visitation team, which was basically one-on-one with a, with a, um, shut-in. But she had an idea that was even grander and better, and that was to form teams, teams of three or four, to go to a shut-in, whether they're at their house or in their nursing home, wherever it is, and, and take church to the shut-in. Church. That's what we call mobile ministry. Church on wheels. And so we take church to a shut-in. So three, four, or five people, and one person is a leader, and that person prepares a brief little devotional, a, a good thought from the Word of God that will be encouraging, whether they read it or, or not. And then they have some songs to sing, if, if they can sing, and they pray together, and then they have fellowship and interaction with that shut-in. And it's about an hour. It's not just come and talk and pray and leave, which is good because shut-ins need that. But this is come and have church with a, and, and bring ministry that they no longer can participate in back to them. Reconnect them to the ministry. Do you have any idea how that refreshes the soul of a shut-in? And so we have a couple teams already sent out. That means that maybe two or three shut-ins are getting this kind of ministry. They get it once a month. Well, we've got a dozen or more shut-ins. We could use a whole lot more people. If you'd be willing to, to participate, and if you want to do that or just learn more about it, you can talk to Irma, and she'll raise her hand right now. There she is. And, and, and talk with her and we worked together on this and organized it. And I think that you'll find it's an incredible opportunity for ministry. Another way is to have widows or widowers in your home for a meal. I know couples that do this. And those widows and widowers are refreshed. A lot of people get into the hospital. And you know what? You could help me do that ministry. If you want to help go visit somebody in the hospital, just talk to me. I'll give you names. I'll give you a little couple pointers and what to do, what not to do. And just go and visit people in the hospital. How about single parents in our church or those who are spiritually single? Think about all the people who need refreshment. So if you're a person who is a refresher, you've learned how to meet needs. You have learned that if you're going to really refresh people, you're going to have to go for God's approval, not man's approval. And if you're going to do it, 
You've got to do it zealously. That's verse 17. That's the third characteristic. He zealously pursued the ministry of refreshment. Look at verse 17. When he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. Now look, he didn't have an Android GPS cell phone where he could just and find Paul. And, and he, had to, he didn't know where he was at first. He had to find Paul. Why was he in Rome? We don't know. Perhaps on business. And if he was on business, that meant that he had to take time away from his activities and go seek out a brother in need and hunt for him. And he hunted for Paul until he found him. And when he found him, he breathed life into Saul's soul. He zealously pursued the ministry of refreshment. He inconvenienced himself. He expended time and energy to find him. And so... Uh, Onesiphorus went after it, so to speak. So I trust that if God gives you some kind of ministry of refreshment, that you say, okay, this is it. This is what God wants me to do. I'm going to go after it because this, is, this requires zeal. Don't do it half-heartedly. Go after it. And then the last quality of a, of a refresher, a person who refreshes, is in verse 16 and 18. Let me read it to you. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, or Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me. Often refreshed me. So that means that for as many times as he came to Rome, he found Paul and he ministered to him. Or he went back several times at the same time at the same visit in Rome. We don't know exactly the details, but the point is he often refreshed Paul in prison. And then verse 18, the Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you know, you Timothy, know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. See, we have a person here who's living a lifestyle of refreshment. See, this wasn't the first time. He's saying, Timothy, remember all the different things that Onesiphorus did for you in Ephesus in your ministry? And, and, and perhaps Paul's ministry, roughly two or three years in Ephesus. Remember how he helped? He, the services he rendered, don't know exactly what they were. But he did this again, and he did it not just to Paul in prison, but prior to that. It was his lifestyle. It was a lifestyle of refreshment. He often refresh me this man had a servant's heart and wherever he was he wanted to refresh he wanted to breathe life into others you may be a person who is in need of refreshment do you think Onesiphorus ever needed refreshment himself I think he did but you know I wonder if God refreshed him as he refreshed others you know what does proverbs eleven twenty five say he who refreshes or waters others will himself be refreshed or watered see what happens god has this wonderful ministry of reciprocation that as we give god replenishes us so that as we go out to refresh, in the process, God sends others and he sends people to us and refreshes us. And so Paul's prayer there, it's a kind of a prayer wish. The Lord grant mercy. He's just saying, God, 
you've been so merciful to me. You sent this man and he refreshed me. Oh, Lord, he needs mercy. Have mercy on him and his household. They, they did without him as he, as he departed home to go be with me or they, they, they were separated for a while. Lord, have mercy on his household. You see, that's always asked. Lord, fulfill your promises. That, that's all. And so I'm sure God did. And so perhaps you're a person who stands in need of refreshment. Have you ever reached out to refresh others? Sometimes when we pull back for whatever reason, and the article on loneliness has some thoughts to share about that, we, we kind of cloister ourselves just to protect ourselves from certain things. But in the process, we make our own selves lonely and then we cause loneliness in others. I wonder if we would just swallow our pride, which is right there at the core of it all, and just say, Lord, use me in the life of somebody else. I just want to please you. You can be a person who refreshes. There's a whole lot more to be said, but I want to give time for communion. I want to draw our attention to Jesus now in this issue of loneliness. In this issue of loneliness. How does, how does Isaiah 53 describe Jesus? He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Well, one of those sorrows is that he experienced rejection. Can you think of different ways that Jesus experienced rejection? I can think of things like um, his own family, his own brothers and sisters didn't believe in him. The townsfolk rejected him. The synagogue rulers rejected him. The religious leaders of the day rejected him. The Roman government officials rejected him. And he said that in the end to his disciples, you all would scatter and I'll be alone. He said in, in John 16, he says, uh, I'll be alone, but I won't be alone because the father will be with me. You can come on down. <laughs> the father will be with me. And that's what held, that's what held Jesus. But brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, there was a time when Jesus did not know the presence of the Father. He was so alone. And you know that time, don't you? Remember when he was on the cross, his cry of dereliction? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you struggle with loneliness, if you struggle with loneliness, I want you to know that Jesus Christ, who died, was buried, rose again from the dead, and is living in heaven today at the right hand of God in a glorified body. I want you to know that there's a man in heaven who has struggled with the depth of loneliness that neither you nor I have never felt. And if you're a believer, you can't feel. And when I, when I thought about this, I just... I just Glorified God. Think about it. Jesus experienced a loneliness of a rejection of the father. He, the father turned away when he was, when the father was laying on Jesus, the son, the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53. The sun turned dark and from noon to three, it was, it was complete darkness. Jesus suffered in darkness and in complete abandonment from the Father because 
He became saturated with sin, your sin and mine. And God cannot look on sin. And so he turned away from the son. And in that moment, he experienced a loneliness that you and I don't have to. He experienced so that we won't have to because he is our substitute. Today, as you hold in your hand these elements, the bread and the cup, And as you remember Jesus, his death, the body being nailed to the tree and his blood being shed, as you remember him, I want you to understand that Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's an answer to that question. There's an answer to that question. And that is he he forsake he forsook him because he he's providing salvation for you and for me. Let that sink into your soul and rejoice in your Savior. And if you struggle with loneliness, know in your heart that Jesus Christ understands that. We'll talk more about that next week, being strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. So now we're going we're gonna to distribute this, these elements, the bread and first the bread. And it means his body. It means that... His body was put on the tree. It's a symbol of his body. It doesn't change substance. Hold it in your hand. Let the Lord search your heart. Examine yourselves. Be, be prepared to eat this bread and drink the cup. And if you don't know Jesus, you've never repented and trusted in him, let it pass by. Because in eating and drinking, what you're saying is, I do trust in him. I do know Jesus. I do believe in him. And if you haven't yet, then why eat or drink if you haven't? So come to him. Now we're going to distribute the bread and then we'll give thanks and we'll eat together.